Father in heaven, we come to this portion of our service and worship, and we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for the truth that is contained in your word, that you, O Lord, have preserved your word for us for generation after generation. Lord, we ask that you would speak to us this morning, that in spite of an insufficient messenger, that your message would be all-sufficient. That, God, you would preach and speak to us all this morning to encourage us, to challenge us. Father, we pray that, as hard as it is to ask, that you might convict us where we need conviction. Lord, that those who need comfort and encouragement would find it in your word. We ask all these things, Father. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. Amen. If you have your Bible, I encourage you to take it and turn with me to Psalm 16. We are continuing our summer in the Psalms. And this morning I'll be reading for us Psalm 16. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, feel free to borrow one from the back of the pew in front of you. If you don't own your own copy of God's Word, feel free to take one and we will replenish it. Whether you're looking on your phone, following on the screens or you have printed text in front of you, Um, regardless of how you are accessing the word of the Lord, I would ask, if you're physically able, would you please stand out of reverence for the public reading of God's holy word? This morning, I'm going to read for us all of Psalm 16, all 11 verses. When I've completed, I encourage you to say, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord. I encourage you to respond by saying, thanks be to God. But before I begin reading this morning, I want to just give us a brief reminder that the Psalms are songs and the Psalms are prayers. And so the way that I would love for us to read this together as we look through this Psalm, ask ourselves. I'm going to ask myself, I want you to ask yourself, do my prayers sound like this? Do I pray like David prayed in this Psalm? Let's look together. This is a mitkam, a mictam of David, Psalm 16, beginning in verse 1. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones, in whom is my delight all the day. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Therefore my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. This is the word of the Lord. 
Thanks be to God. You may be seated. We come to this psalm this morning, and and I want for us to just take our time and walk through these 11 verses, verse by verse, because there's meat in every verse for us. And so we're going to be like the people who got the drumstick, and we are going to take every morsel of meat off the bone that we can. I want us to start off with that first verse. And I... I just was convicted in coming to this psalm all week long. Preserve me, O God. Hold on to me, Lord. Keep me, Lord. If you remember, oftentimes we have prayed our benediction prayer, and I've, I've prayed a blessing over you, and I've said, Lord, make your face shine upon us. Lord, bless us and keep us. That's that same word. That's that same preservation. We are begging for the Lord to hold on to us, to protect us, to preserve our very being. You know, the the beauty of that is that it's not up to you and me to preserve our being. In this whole service, all the breath that I used to sing to God was a gift from God in the first place. David begins this psalm by begging the Lord to preserve his life, to hold on to him, to take refuge in God, because he understands that he doesn't control his own life, that he did not set how many days he would live beforehand. You know, one of our church members is experiencing a little bit of heart trouble, and they've got to go have a procedure done this week, and they were telling me about it this morning, and I couldn't help but think about this passage and think about how that's coming up this morning, even as he spoke to me. Sometimes he wakes up in the middle of the night, and his heart's doing crazy things. And you know what? If you wake up in the middle of the night, it's not you that kept your heart pumping, is it? You didn't actively think the whole time that you were sleeping, pump, 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 pump. God himself preserves our lives and keeps our heart beating in rhythm. I don't care if you've got the best pacemaker in the world. God himself preserves our life. How often do we approach him in prayer with that concept in mind, that dependency at the forefront of our prayers? Lord, I know that I wouldn't even have the breath to pray this prayer if not for you preserving my life. Is the Lord genuinely where we take refuge? We seek the Lord and say, God, you hold my life, keep me, preserve me, because in you I take refuge. Where do you go for refuge? I know for a lot of my life, it was my dad. My dad always knows something good and wise to say. And so when I needed refuge, when I needed a safe place, when I needed good counsel, I went to my earthly father. Where where do you take refuge? Where do I take refuge? I want you to know when big decisions have to be made for the household. If my wife is unsure about the decision and I am unsure about the decision, it is hard to make that decision. I'm looking for refuge. I'm looking for where is that safe place? And in our hearts and in our lives, that should always be the Lord. Do we run to God as our refuge? Then David continues, he says in verse 2, I say to the Lord, you are my Lord, which is is such a strange thing for us today because how how many of us have a Lord, right? Raise your hand if there is somebody who is your Lord other than Jesus. Name a time in your life that you used the word Lord in regular conversation referring to somebody else other than something religious. Yeah, it just doesn't happen. We We don't talk like that. The Lord is my pilot. I love 
the idea of him being my pilot. You, you know, there's those bumper stickers that were real popular for a while that said, Jesus is my co-pilot, right? But that's not necessarily true. God is the pilot. And, and you know, when things go wrong in the plane, you know why everybody in the plane gets scared? Is because they're all hoping that the pilot doesn't feel suicidal that day because their lives depend upon the pilot, right? None of them know how to fly the plane. It's like your spouse or whoever, when they drive in the car next to you and they slam on the emergency brake in their seat that's not there, it's imaginary, they're having to trust their life to you. They are saying to you, you are my Lord. I'm just going to sit in this car and you're going to take me wherever you drive. I'm going to get in this plane and I'm going to relinquish control and you're going to be the pilot. And wherever you fly this plane is where I'm going to go. You know, you could get up in the air and an engine could fail and turn around and land again. And then I'll come right back to this same airport because I've said, you're in control of where I go and what I do. That's the concept of Lord. That we shackle ourselves to someone and say, you're in charge. Do we approach God in that way and say, God, I'll I'll go wherever you would have me to go. I'll do whatever you would have me to do. Lord, preserve me, maintain my life. I'm going to run to you for refuge and I'm going to say, you are my boss. You are my master. You are my owner. You are my pilot. You are my driver. You drive and I ride and I will go where you drive. And then, man, this, this is the bottom half of verse 2. I have no good apart from you. Folks, I can be honest with you. I, I don't pray like that. Going to God and saying, God, I have nothing that is good apart from you. But, but you know, let's, let's be real. This is a psalm, correct? And in psalms, they're, they're speaking metaphorically. Philip and I had the opportunity to go to this uh, preaching seminar that they did at the State Board of Missions this Thursday. And Dr. Herschel York, a, a really prominent preaching professor, just a brilliant man. He's been preaching for years. He's listened to thousands and thousands of hours of sermons. He talked about the difference between, you know, like John 21 where they catch a huge catch of fish, and he tells us there's 153 fish. And we can trust that there were 153 fish in John 21 because it's part of the narrative. It's part of the story. It's just giving us factual information. But like in the Psalms when it says that God is the God who owns cattle on a thousand hills, do you think that the psalmist really means exactly 1,000 hills? Do you think that he counted exactly 999, there's cattle over there, and 1,000? He owns cattle on exactly 1,000 hills. No. It's poetic. It's, it's a metaphor. Metaphors speak to us, but it doesn't necessarily mean that the exact wording and phrasing is to be believed. What's being communicated is not that God owns cattle on 1,000 hill, but God owns all the cattle. God owns more cattle than you can count. God owns more cattle than he could keep up with. God owns it all. In the same way, what is the psalmist, what is David saying when he says, I have no good apart from you? What does he mean? What could that metaphor mean to us today? What did David mean when he wrote it? I'll tell you what he meant. Now, this is cryptic. This is hard. Buckle your seatbelt, okay? Are you ready for the true meaning of Psalm 16, verse 2? He means he has no good apart from God. You know what the metaphor means? God is the only good thing in his life. You know what the metaphor means? All the good that is in his life flows from God. James will say it this way. Every good and perfect gift 
comes from above. If you or I have anything good in our lives, anything that brings us joy, anything that brings us pleasure, ultimately that's from God. And I wondered, do we pray like that? Do we acknowledge to God, I have no good apart from you? God, you're the only one who has given me good. You're the only good thing in my life. Because that's a dangerous prayer, right? Because my wife is a very good thing that God has given me in my life. My children are very good things that God has given me in my life. My Camry, all right, it's about 11, 12 years old. It's got a hundred and something thousand miles on it. I think it's 160 these days. But that joker fires up every time I turn that key. And it is a good that God has given me in my life. That thing has taken me everywhere I needed to go. Now watch it break down this week, all right? Y'all, y'all know this is what happens. I say something about speeding in a sermon, I got a ticket that same week. Y'all remember that, right? It's prophetic stuff that happens up here. So if y'all get a phone call from me needing a ride later this week, just, you know, remember. But every good thing, every good and perfect gift comes from God. And, and when your spouse is making you the happiest that you've ever been, when you look at your child and they are the cutest that they have ever been, and you think, oh, my heart is so full. Do we lay all that praise at the feet of our children or our grandchildren or our spouse? Or do we remember that that's only good because of God? We have no good apart from God and what God has granted us. It's not to say that there aren't other good things in our lives. Just to say that everything good we have finds its source in God. Do we live in that way? Now, it almost sounds like David begins to double talk here. He's speaking out of both sides of his mouth. It would seem like, I have no good apart from you, Lord. Lord, you are my Lord. And then he says, as for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. So if there's no good apart from God, how can his delight be in something other than God? But, but I, I want us to take note of what David is actually saying. He's saying that the saints, those who believe on the Lord, are his delight because they acknowledge there is no good apart from God. So because they delight in the Lord, David delights in them. So we come to this place, we gather together, and we are gathered with the saints, those who believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And those who have made their delight the Lord, it is easy to take delight in. That's part of what happens when we sing, when we give, when we worship through preaching, through every aspect of this service. Even when we watch the kids get up and hustle out to children's church or scream and cry because they don't want to go to children's church or be drugged with fingernails in the carpet all the way to children's church. We all smile. We laugh. We find delight. And these children going to children's church to learn about the Lord because these families are here and they obviously delight in the Lord. Their children are here. They've brought their children to learn to delight in the Lord. That's what David is saying. And so I wonder, is our delight in our favorite sport team? Is our delight in our job? Is our delight in our accomplishments? Or is our delight in the Lord? Is our delight and satisfaction truly in the Lord, just like we talked about in Psalm 90. Where do we find that satisfaction? Where is our delight? Do we take delight when we see others delighting in the Lord? And one thing I can say about this church is that, Bethany, we have a very special way of responding when somebody's baptized. 
And it's been that way the entire time that I've been here. And it's one of my all-time favorite things about Bethany. I've never visited another church that responds the way that we respond when somebody follows in obedience in the waters of baptism. Everybody applauds. Everybody stands. Because there is delight in this room because of somebody delighting in the Lord and being willing to follow Jesus through the waters of baptism. That's what delighting in those who delight in the Lord looks like. So I'm just curious, how well do we do that outside of baptism? Outside of that one moment where we celebrate so ferociously together, fierce celebration, woo, man, that's awesome. Everybody stands up. Everybody's, man, this is incredible. Thank you for being obedient to Jesus. What else in your life causes you to delight in someone else taking delight in the Lord in that same way? Where where do we find that kind of pleasure other than that one moment after baptism? He continues on and he says that the sorrows of those who run after another God will multiply. We've talked about this before. This, If you look at material, physical possessions, the, the things that people have that follow another God, those things may multiply. But I guarantee you their sorrows and their emptiness multiply with it. The only people who have true joy and true contentment are those who find their delight in the Lord Jesus. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or even take their names On my lips. This is how serious David is about fighting against idolatry in his life. He will not pour out blood to any other God. He will not drink any other drink offering to any other God. He will not even put the name of another God on his lips. And that might be difficult for us to think. I'm going to be honest with you, Pastor. Nobody has ever tempted me to worship another God by pouring out a blood offering to it. Um, I, I don't think I'm going to have a problem with that one. I've never poured out a drink offering of blood to another God. Never even been in a situation where that might even be possible. Well, the idea in the metaphor here is that David is running from any and every other idolatrous thing in his life. Do we run from idols in our lives? Or are we comfortable flirting with idols? How comfortable are you and I with putting good things in God's place and making them God things and saying that I have good and I have good apart from God, that's idolatry. Are we even willing to let that pass from our lips? Sometimes I think figuratively we pour out a blood offering to other false gods in our society and in our culture every single day. So how's that look in your life? What's that scene like? What's that blood offering for you in your life? Then he says, the Lord is my chosen portion in my lot. He's my, he's my cup. He's my chosen portion in my cup, and you hold my lot. You know, we, don't, we don't use that language very often. Maybe uh, your lot in life. That's, that's probably the only thing that we can compare that to. You know, this is my lot in life. They're, they're talking about you know, drawing straws, maybe. That's a, a little bit easier to connect with. When you draw a straw, you get the long straw, you get the short straw. You know what it means if you get the short straw. David says, anything that you would consider luck, anything that you would consider to be luck of the draw or the lot that you have just received, that comes from God. There is no luck. There is no coincidence. It's all from God. It says, the Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. 
Listen, today being the fifth Sunday, we're going to take communion. And in a moment, we'll do that. But I, I don't want us to miss the tie-ins in these two verses. In verses 4 and 5, there is an offering of blood, but it's not to false gods. There's blood that we sang about all morning long that was poured out for us, not as a drink offering to a false god, but the one true living God pouring out his blood on our behalf. There is a cup, and the Lord is our portion and our cup. You see, the cup that I don't think David's referring to, I don't think David fully understood when he wrote this, is the cup of wrath that we deserve. Jesus drank down every last drop. You and I can pray even more accurately than what David prayed, that the Lord is our cup. That all of his wrath was taken on by Jesus. He drank the cup of wrath. He offers us the cup of redemption. That's part of communion. In the Lord's Supper, it's a It's an image of Passover. And in Passover, they had multiple cups. There was a cup of God's wrath. There was a cup of redemption. That third cup was the cup of redemption that you drank at a specific portion in the meal. That cup for us of redemption is Jesus. And I want to just skip down for the sake of time. I want us to look at verse 10. It says, You will not abandon my soul to Sheol, Or let your Holy One see corruption. This is incredible. Because what happens here is David does not see. He's writing prophetically, but he does not see. He trusts the promise of this happening, but he doesn't see it. David's not saying, I am the Holy One and I will not see corruption. Don't read this as David claiming to be the Messiah and claiming to be the Holy One and claiming not to see corruption. David knew that he would die. In 1 Chronicles, the Lord comes to David and he says, David, when you pass away, one day down the road, there will be a son after your throne that will sit on your throne, only they will establish the throne forever. That's who David is referring to. And just in case we had any qualms about it whatsoever, turn with me to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 13 both testify to this truth. Acts chapter 2, this is Peter. He's giving his sermon on the day of Pentecost. He is there and he is preaching to the people. And he says that in verse 24, we'll pick up. Acts chapter 2, verse 24 and following, he says, God raised him up, talking about Jesus, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for Jesus to be held by those pangs of death. For even David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me. This is verse 8 that we just read earlier. For he is at my right hand that I might not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Now, what Peter has just done in his sermon is the same thing that Paul will do in chapter 13. But here's the incredible part. Both of them don't leave us hanging. 
Both of them say when David writes Psalm 16, he is prophetically talking about Jesus as the one who would not see corruption. Then Peter goes a step further and explains to you and to me how this is Jesus. You don't have to just take Peter's word for it. Peter tells you how the Holy Spirit inspired him to see that this is talking about Jesus in Psalm 16. So he continues in verse 29. He says, brothers, I say to you with confidence about the patriarch David. He both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. You've got to understand where he is there in preaching on the hill. He, he is saying not only did David die, not only was David buried, but if we want to walk three or four blocks right over here, folks, I can show you his tomb. I can show you his body. I can show you the box they put his bones in. David is dead. He is gone. He is buried. He is corrupted. He has seen corruption. David did not live forever. We needed somebody else that could live forever. He points out to us this has to be Jesus because Jesus hasn't seen corruption. David's body, he died and was put into a tomb, and he stayed in that tomb. It's memorialized. You can go to Israel today, and you can go through and see a monument, a memorial made to King David and where he was buried. You can't do that with Jesus. Being therefore a prophet, verse 30. And knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him, that's what we talked about in First Chronicles, that he would set one of his descendants on his throne. He foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. You know how Jesus' flesh didn't see corruption? It didn't stay dead. Friday, he dies. They bury him Friday evening. He is in the tomb all night Friday night. He is in the tomb all day Saturday. All the disciples are distraught. They have no idea what to do. They've been following this Jesus guy. He said he was the Messiah, and now he is dead. His body, his life, he has gone down to Sheol, and there is no hope for him whatsoever. That's the thought that everybody has all night Friday night. That's the thought that everybody has all day Saturday. That's the thought that everybody has all night Saturday night. But you know what happened very early in the morning on Sunday morning? Jesus said, I'm not going to stay in Hades or Sheol. I'm not going to sit in this tomb. I'm not going to be overcome by the pains of death. I'm not going to sit around and see corruption. He got up out of the grave. Nobody else did that. David couldn't do that. Moses couldn't do that. Elijah couldn't do that. Jesus got up out of the grave and he never saw corruption. His soul was not abandoned to Hades. His soul was not abandoned to the depths. He got up out of the grave. So he never saw corruption. Peter doesn't just say, take my word for it. He says, let me prove it to you. Not only is this not David, but it is Jesus. And you know how he knows that it is Jesus? You know how he knows that Jesus got up out of that grave? He knows because he has seen him. Because just like we talked about in John 21, he had fish with Jesus. There were 153 of them. They ate breakfast together. They broke bread. He could see the wounds where his blood poured out. Thomas could put his hand on the side where they speared him. Could feel of his feet and his hands. Jesus was and is and forever will be alive. And because Jesus is alive, we have hope. That if we have faith in Him, we will live forever. But you know, folks, 
Sometimes I, I think we get a little overwhelmed with forever. In, in closing, I, I know, I know, I know what time it is. Stay with me. If you're asleep, now's a good time to wake up. Good morning. All right, you're back with me. Amen. Praise Jesus. Look at verse 11. Look at verse 11. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. I, I'm, I'm curious, has anybody, and I'm, I'm asking for participation. This is not rhetorical. Here's the extent of the participation. I'm going to ask a question. If the answer is yes, you're going to raise your hand. All right? Okay, let's, let's do this together. Has anybody in their life ever had the thought, man, I hope Jesus doesn't come back before I get to experience whatever the fill in the blank. Has anybody ever had that thought? Listen, I'll be honest with you. As a young man, I was engaged to a beautiful woman, and I thought to myself, man, I hope Jesus doesn't come back before I get married. I, I, I would look forward to movies coming out, and I would be so selfish and so dis combobulated as far as scriptural things i think man i really hope i get to see that movie before jesus comes back i really get to hope i get to see how all this wraps up i really hope i get to drive before jesus comes back i really hope i get to have kids or watch them walk down the aisle or, or watch them graduate or have grandkids before jesus comes back and i want you to know all of those thoughts that we have are rooted in this idea that one day heaven will be boring and you know the metaphor that is being said here in verse 11, there will be zero boredom in heaven. There will be zero boredom in the afterlife. He says, in your presence, what is in God's presence? That's heaven, right? Being face to face with God in his presence for all eternity. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. How full is full? Can you be more full than full? No. It doesn't happen. Have you, there's a TikTok trend that went around a while back where everybody was playing this game and they'd put a cup of water and they'd have to all take turns trying to fill it up. And you'd think, oh, the cup's definitely full. And they drop a little bit more in there and it doesn't spill. And they drop a little more in there and it doesn't spill. But you always get to a point where the cup can hold nothing else. It is full. And when you try to put anything else in that cup, it overflows and spills down onto whatever that cup's sitting on. Guess what? That's the fullness of joy. That's the fullness. There are pleasures forevermore at your right hand. Whatever the most pleasurable, whatever the most fun, whatever the most enjoyable thing you can possibly comprehend or imagine in this life now, take it to the full, to the max, and that's the worst thing in heaven. In His presence, there is a fullness, a completeness, a wholeness, a 100% joy. Not just for a moment, but forever. When we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. And guess what? 10,000 years in, it's not going to get old. 10,000 years in, we'll have just as much fullness of joy as when we started. Don't dread heaven like it's going to be sitting on a cloud playing some kind of harp. Heaven is the full, maximum possible capacity of joy in human experience. And it's the max forever. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Don't think Christians are the dull, boring people. Don't think heaven is the dull, boring place. Heaven's for real and heaven is full of joy and pleasure. 
the best experiences, the most satisfied you've been in life. And it's all available because, thank God, David wasn't the Messiah. David died and stayed dead. It's available. That fullness of joy is available because it wasn't dependent on David. That fullness of joy is available not because of the blood offerings you pour out to false gods. Not because just that the Lord is my cup, but he drank the cup. He took on the wrath for you and for me. So that we might experience redemption and the fullness of joy. That's why we partake in communion. We come to this table together as a church family to break the bread and remember the broken body that purchased our fullness of joy. We drink of the cup remembering that He is our cup and He is our portion forevermore. But folks, I I just want to remind us that in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, there's some pretty specific instructions about how we are to take communion. And it's not about how we pass it out. It's not about how often we do it. It's about the attitude of our heart as we approach this table. If you're not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, I I would ask, as humbly as I know how, to just please pass the elements by you. And don't partake if you don't believe. If you're not a believer, then don't participate in this worship. I I would also ask, if you know that you have sin in your heart that is unreconciled, if your brother or sister has something against you and you have not reconciled that, the Bible says you leave your gift at the altar, you go and be reconciled to your brother or your sister, and then you come back and worship. And so I just want to encourage you, if your heart's not in the right place, then just pass the plate to the next person. This is not a room of judgment. Nobody's going to be looking around to try and see who partakes and who doesn't. We're going to be focused on worshiping the Lord together. Your decision of whether or not to partake is between you and the Lord. But I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to read Psalm 51, verses 1 through 12, as a, as a way to confess our sin and prepare our hearts to partake in communion. Would you bow with me, and I'll pray first, and then we'll turn to Psalm 51. Lord, thank you that you are our cup and our portion. Thank you that in your presence, it's not dull, it's not boring, it never gets old. There is fullness of joy forevermore. Lord, my mind can't even wrap around that. God, as we approach this table, please wash us clean once again. Father, I know your sacrifice for sins, Jesus, was once for all. We just come before you to confess once more and say that we know we are sinners. We know we continue to struggle against our sin and we fail every day. God, would you forgive us as we remember this body of yours that was broken, that we might have forgiveness of sins. As we remember this blood you spilled, perfect, innocent blood on our behalf. Would you help us to worship you, Lord, and to partake of, a, of this table in a manner that is worthy of you, our Lord and Savior. We ask all this in the name of the Father and Son and Holy Spirit.